Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. All right, so if you have your Bibles, open up to First John chapter 4. As Jaron said, we're going to finish out this chapter this morning. And a little bit of geek out, and I'll just warn you now, we're going to seminary class, so we're going to go deep. Um, and, and as always, if you ever see me pull the TV up and we have slides and graphs and different things like that, uh, every once in a while, what you'll see is people will whoop out their phone and like try to sneaky pick it. Yeah, I can see everything. I can see that. I can see when you fall asleep. I see you nudge your spouse. Like I see it all. Um, just, just come up to us in the hub. I would just email you whatever graphics, whatever things that we have. So if you want those, um, we'll just email them to you so you don't have to like do that awkward picture taking, right? Because I don't want to be in that picture. I'm just going to ruin it. So let's not do that. First John chapter four, starting verse seven, beloved, Oh, isn't that a great word? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he suffered the wrath of God for our sins. That's what that big fancy word there means. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God and God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but love, perfect love, cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has. Let's try that one again. He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And his commandment and this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I thought every time John writes the word love, we would take a shot of communion right there, right? Like we would be full on grape juice right there. And so you're hearing this and you're probably thinking like, here's John talking about it again. He's like, he's repeating himself yet another time. And there is a little bit, but he's, he's bringing us the same theological truth, but he's going deeper with it and like get your goggles and your scuba diving, 
scuba diving gear on because we're going to go real deep, right? So there's something called theology proper, right? This is a, I had to take a class titled Theology Proper, and I'm like, I'm the least proper person there is in the universe. And so I thought we were going to talk about manners and how to, you know, which fork you eat at dinner when you have 19 of them. Like, I'm going to be very proper. But Theology Proper talks about the study of the attributes of God. And attributes are just the essential traits of God. One of my favorite uh, professors that I had, he kind of has a famous quote. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. I even thought about starting the sermon, just coming up and before saying good morning, just like, what's the most important thing about you? But we're in church. And of course, all of us are going to say, my relationship with Jesus. But then let's look at our life Monday through Saturday and still see, is that the most important thing about our lives? But what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we have to understand, then what do we know about God? What do we think about God then? How deep is that well of a relationship and knowing who he is? Because, you know, I've been married for a couple of years now, times a couple more, and my knowledge of who my wife is has grown. Like if I would have known all this crazy that she is the day we got married, I'd have went to Buffalo Wild Wings instead, right? But as we, okay, there's two laughs there. Everybody's like, I'm not laughing at that. My spouse is sitting right here. You think I'm stupid? Whatever. She's not here, so I can say this, even though she's probably watching the live stream. But as our relationship continued, so did the depth of our relationship. And the same should be with our walk with Jesus. Like all of us had a very shallow understanding of who Jesus was was and what he did for us when we got saved like there it really wasn't that much intellectually that it brought it was far more understanding i'm a sinner in need of grace but then as my relationship continued with jesus so did my depth and understanding of who he was so did my theology proper i just didn't use terms like that and i still kind of don't and now there's different attributes of God. And this is the geek out part, right? So there's metaphysical, nice big fancy word there. That's why it's uh, highlighted. There's metaphysical attributes of God. These are literal. These are based on who God actually is, right? And we'll, we'll give some examples. And then there's also metaphorical attributes of God. These are figurative and they're not based on the way God actually is. One attack that we get from sometimes inside the church and outside of the church, well, when, how do you literal and figurative? What's the line between that? Well, you'll be able to see that. You know, so like a metaphorical attribute of God is he upholds us, you know, he lifts us up on wings like eagles, as Isaiah says that. Well, does that mean God has feathers? No, that's like, we can understand that because if, again, if we know the metaphysical attributes, we know that God can't have feathers. And so the metaphorical, and there's a reason for those. A lot of times when you see a metaphorical attribute of God, it's, also, it's often describing his ability, not his attribute. Okay, so we want to talk about the ability of God. And usually it wants to evoke a response in us. There's something because... It's, it's in the causal relationship. God, 
being the cause of us, he created everything, that we use these metaphorical attributes of God and these figures of speech and words because we want to invoke a response from us, okay? Everybody with me still? We're going to go a little deeper now. We're going to go one more, one more level down. There's actually three different kinds of metaphorical statements about God. And, and I love to geek out on this because uh, there's certain things that I have heard people struggle with in Scripture. And when I teach this and outline this, they said, now that makes sense. So we have a faith that makes sense. It is a reasonable, logical, it is a, it is a faith that has evidence that we can examine it. You know, now, are we going to be able to know everything? No, because it's a, we are finite. God is infinite. We'll talk about that. But there's three basic kinds of medical, metaphorical statements about God. First one, nice big fancy word right here, so if you want to sound smart, anthropomorphism. Yeah, I don't even know if that's pronounced right, to be honest. Anthropomorphism means we describe God in human form. He upholds us with his righteous right hand. God doesn't have a hand. God is spirit and truth. And so we're using this metaphorical statement and we're giving God human form. You know, the eyes of the Lord see to and fro. The Lord doesn't have eyes. He is spirit and truth. We're, we are, again, giving him, talking about his abilities, evoking a response for us. And so we don't want to think that God's covered in feathers. He has a right hand. He has some eyes and, and all the other crazy metaphorical statements about God, right? Now, the other one is called an anthropopathism. We describe God with changing human feelings. God cannot change. He is immutable. That's one of his metaphysical attributes. God cannot change. But in Scripture, we will see verses that give God changing human feelings. So think in Genesis. When he created man and he sees the whole world fallen in sin and he's going to get ready to flood the earth, what does he say before that? He regretted that he made man. Can God really regret a decision? Did he do something less than perfect? No, that is, that is a metaphorical statement that we are giving God human feelings so to better understand us and invoke a response from us. Make sense? One more. Anthropoesis. And this is a medical for, metaphorical statement about God describing him with human actions. And so there's a verse that talks about God repented. Did God really repent? No. That's an action. That's a human action that we are metaphorical, adding to God to better understand him, evoke a response. But these are figurative, not literal. So let me give you a couple uh, examples just so we know. So we kind of talked about this one, Exodus 32, 14, the Lord repented, Yahweh repented. That can deny his immutability, meaning God cannot change. That is a metaphysical, that is who God is. He cannot change. He is immutable. Well, this seems like he changed. That's a metaphorical statement. That's why we have to understand that if we take this to be metaphysical, we're going to lead us into some crazy theology. Hebrews 4.13, the eyes of him, this can deny his immateriality. God is not material. There's no substance to God. He is spirit. He is truth. And so we say we, the eyes of him, the eyes of God, that's metaphorical. Okay, keep going with me. Deuteronomy 32.4, he is the rock. That's going to deny his infinity, right? A rock is finite. 
The Lord is not a pet rock that we carry around in our pocket and then anything goes wrong. We rub the, the rock and the little genie comes out that we call the Holy Spirit. No. It's meaning, what's the, what, we can't deny his infinity, so what are we talking about when we say God is a rock? He is a sure foundation. The, the response is that we can base our life upon him. He is that cornerstone that when they built houses back in the day, everything was, all the weight of the walls of the house was on that cornerstone. God is that rock that the weight of our lives is, can be placed on him, and that's a sure foundation. Now, is God sedimentary rock? No, not at all. This is a metaphorical statement. Uh, this will get a couple of you. Romans 11.2, whom he foreknew. Uh, God has no foreknowledge. That's a meta metaphorical statement about God because it'll deny his eternality. To have foreknowledge means that you're within time. God is outside of time. God created time. He's not stuck under the bounds of time and has to look down and predict the future and look down the quarter of time. God is outside of time. It's like he's on top of the mountain and he can see past, present, and future as if it is all currently happening. So think about that. God sees your birth, the moment of your salvation. He sees the death of Christ on the cross. He sees the resurrection of Jesus. He sees your physical death as if it is all currently happening to him. There's nothing that surprises God. He's not looking at, oh, man, I, I didn't know Zach was going to be at church this morning. That's awesome. I didn't know that. He knew that. And we can't even say he knew that from the beginning of time because that places him within time, right? And so that's a metaphorical, again, trying to get us to help us understand who he is and evoke a response, but that is metaphorical. 1 Kings 11.9, the Lord... Yahweh became angry. That can deny his, this is called impassibility, meaning that God can suffer or endure pain of changing emotions. We cannot hurt God's feelings. God does have feelings. He's a mind, a will, and emotions. He is a person. That's what personhood is, to have a mind, will, and emotions. But we can't hurt God's feelings. We use that as a metaphorical statement but we can't, the lower cannot hurt the higher, right? So these are metaphorical statements to help us understand and evoke a response. And then Genesis eleven five, the Lord came down to see that would deny his omniscience. God didn't need to come down to see what was going on. Like he already didn't know that they were building this tower of Babel. No, this is a metaphorical statement. And this is all important. I got to forget where all my notes are at because we want to talk about God's nature, right? That is what the metaphysical attributes of God is referring to who he actually is, God's nature. And what John gives us here in 1 John 4 is a massive understanding of God's nature. He is omnibenevolent. Omnibenevolence refers to his infinite or unlimited goodness or love. So when John is saying God is love, that's not a metaphorical statement. That is a metaphysical. That is who God actually is. He is love, right? And so we really want to dig in and understand that. In the Old Testament, you'll see the word loving kindness. It'll be used to refer to God in the New Testament. Here, all through, every time John says love, he's using a Greek word called agape, meaning the selfless, sacrificial love. And so we see in verse 8 and verse 16, he's telling us, God is love. Understand the nature of God. 
Dig deep. Go deeper in your walk with the Lord. Don't stay shallow in your understanding of who God is. Keep walking into the deeper waters and understand His full nature. And there's a reason for that. And so look at verse 10, if you would, with me. And and the ESV, which I read and teach out of, verse 10, it says, In this is love. If we would go back to the original Greek, there's a definite article before the word love. So if we're going to read it perfectly in the English, we would read it this way. In this is the love. Like, meaning this is, this is what true love really is. Not when you were in middle school and that one boy or that one girl asked you to the dance and, oh, this is true love. That's not love at all. That's lust. And some of us are still trying to go to the middle school dances figuratively, right? This is what true love, like John's telling you, let me tell you what the love is. And so if you read the rest of 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son. You want to know what true love truly is? This is the love. God is love. This is the love that he sent his son for you, for me. Because we deserved it and we earned it? No, 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 not at all. Because it was in response to his, our love for him? No, not at all. We know what Romans says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave. Has nothing to do with us, but because it has to do with God's nature. He is omnibenevolent. He is all loving. His, there is no, there's no uh, end to his love. It is infinite in his love which is kind of crazy to think about, right? So there's aspects of God's love that our finite minds will never understand this side of glory. Yeah, think about that at 3 a.m. when you wake up in the morning. God is unending. He is eternal. And so he's even, I think, unending in his attributes, and those attributes are unending. Yeah, just chew on that one for a while. That's what wakes me up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And so God is love. He defines what love is. He's telling us this is the love that God loved us, sent his son. He defines love, not the other way around. Love does not define God. And that's what our world really wants to do. That's an easy counterfeit. God is love. Amen. We absolutely preach that. And then we hear, well, love is God. Close. Sounds good, but that's a massive counterfeit in our world. Meaning, let love be the standard and let that define what God is. No, 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 no. That's going to lead you into error and heresy. God is love. If there's any other definition or expression of love that contradicts the nature of God, that's not true love. That is a counterfeit, faux love that the enemy wants to bring across to try to weaken, dilute. Remember the VBS Kool-Aid? Want to dilute our faith in God. So if there's any other definition or expression of love that contradicts the nature of God, that's not true love. It's a counterfeit love. Because all of these metaphysical attributes of God, they all go together. A way to think about it is like a little racquetball. Is it more spherical, blue, rubbery, or bouncy? It's all of those at the same time. And that is a simple thing. 
That's actually one of the attributes of God, his simplicity. He, he doesn't have all these parts like we do. We have a heart and a brain and kidneys, and those are just organs and bones and skin. We have all these parts. God doesn't have parts. He is simple, but he's all of these. All of these attributes describe who he is. And so when we talk about God being the definition of love, he is also holy and righteous. So if there is a definition or expression of love that goes against his nature as being holy and righteous, that's not love. He's not going to yield his holiness and his righteousness so that we can uplift love. And that's the counterfeit of our world. And we understand what Scripture says, the greatest of these is love, but he's not going to diminish any other attribute of who he is and platform another one above it. God is who he is. That's what the name Yahweh means. When you see that capital L-O-R-D all through the Old Testament, that is Yahweh. I am who I am. And God is love. God is holy. He is righteous. And there's a lot of these attributes that we could have went through. You hear a few of them. His immutability, eternality, impassibility, his omniscience, his omnipresence. All of those are attributes of who God actually is. Like, all right, Nick, why did we go to seminary? What's this have to do with me? We get it. God is love. This is, his, this is who he is. Take like, at least in my Bible, go back like two pages and go to 2 Peter chapter 1. After Peter gets through all of his introductions and, hey, hey, this is who I am. May grace and beast be multiplied to you, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I just paraphrased the Bible with yada, yada, yada. Look at verse 3. <laughs> The Lord's like, you know I could smite you for that, right? Yes, Lord, Um, and I'm in your grace, thank you. Verse three, his divine power has granted to us, that it's a past tense, It, it actually means grace, that he has graced to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has given us that. Through the knowledge of him, that's why we need to understand who he is And these attributes, who is God? We need to grow in our knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us, there's that word again, his precious and very great promises. Like, if I can be honest, worship this morning was very moving because it was not out of a place of a mountaintop moment. It was out of a place of a deeper valley. And we hold on to the promises of God in those. And if we don't know the promises, where's the foundation of our faith? And so he's telling us, by these precious and very great promises of God, so that through them you may become partakers of the, see those last two words, divine nature. That God, in his power, has given us everything for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So he gives us knowledge of him. John will talk about that. And he's going to call us to his own glory and excellence. He's going to give us these very precious and great promises that we have so that we can partake in his divine nature. God wants us to experience fully who he is. He's not this God that's distant and far away and we have no idea who he is. He goes, no, I want you to experience and know who I am in my nature. Like that is what makes heaven heaven, the presence of God, that we will be able to partake in his divine nature. And so when you read those verses in 2 Peter, now go back to 1 John 4. 
He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected, is matured in us, that we become partakers of that love because he abides in us. That's where we are, partakers of that divine nature because he, through knowledge of him, through his wanting to call us to him, abiding in him, that people, yeah, we can't see God, but they're going to see me through you because you have placed your faith in me and you have become a partaker of my divine nature. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe. So there's that knowledge. There's that relationship. Believe the love that God has for us. And God is love. And whoever abides in love, God's definition of love, his nature, his omnibenevolence, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. The, the understanding the nature of God has a very real and tangible effect to our lives and to our faith. That we can't just say, oh yes, I understand, God is love, and we go back and we just live our lives however that we want. He goes, no, no, I want you to know who I am, and I want you to change every aspect about who you are. I want you to let go of your old nature and I've given you my spirit so that you can have new life. And I want you to be partakers of my divine nature. Like so in other ways, like Paul would say, he, it, we're talking about Christ-likeness. Then when people look at us, they don't see us, they see the divine nature of God. This is who we are supposed to be and as we reflect the glory, because again, he's called us to his glory we reflect that glory, not our own glory. No, we're partakers of the divine nature. That we get to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And so God is who he is. He is unchanging. I am who I am. And, and God cannot not be who he is. God is love. And he is calling us. He has provided everything that we need so that we could be a part of that divine nature. And so look at verse 13. So by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So go to Romans 5.5. 5. <clears throat> there is a tendency in, in church to take for granted, oh yeah, we, we have the spirit and that's old news. We kind of overlook how great that is. All through the Old Testament, they were not given the spirit in the same way that we were. That's why Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost was so crazy that God would give his spirit to permanently indwell believers, followers of Jesus. And, and the fullness of what that means that we have the spirit is a great study that we definitely do not have time for the fullness of it this morning. But Romans 5.5, 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he had given, who he has been given to us. So when we talk about God as love and how do we experience what that love is, it's because he has given us the Holy Spirit. So go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, talking about this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So why do we have the Spirit? 317, so that Christ 
may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted, grounded in love, God's love, rooted and grounded in his nature, right? We may, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness the nature of God, the fullness of who God is, that we're going to be filled with that. So think about this. God loves us, so he gives us our, his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Why? So that we can know the love of God more. That we, even in our old nature, have it is impossible for us to understand the fullness of who God is. He has to give us, out of his love, give us his spirit. And we have that spirit to strengthen, to encourage us, to lead us, to again show us how much the love of Christ is. And so when we think about an omnibenevolent, just an all-loving God, I love you so much, I'm going to give you the Spirit so that you can fully understand who I am. And you can fully understand the love that I have for you. And all of this is so encouraging because if you look at verse 17, by this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment so when we stand before the Lord, where's our confidence come from? Lord, you've given me your spirit. You have opened up my mind and my heart to fully understand who you are to the fullness of who you are. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. This is why we need to know the nature of God. We need to, so when John is writing, so as he is, well, how is God? Lean into that study of who God, that's what theology is, is the study of God. Lean into the study of God. Understand who he is, right? It's not a foreign concept. When I saw this hot girl in nursing school, right, my first day, we sit down, I scan the room because I got to see my options, right? It's what all good single men do. Zeroed in on my targets, this young little thing called Ashley, I want to get to know her. And so where, uh, like, oh, you know, if you need to take a break and go to the water fountain, I'd, you know, make sure that we cross paths. Oh, hey, hi, I'm Nick. Because I wanted to get to know her. So I asked her out on a date. I wanted to get to know her. She didn't like me, not at our first date at all, and I don't blame her. But it's not awkward in any other relationship, or for some reason we get to our faith in Jesus and we say, oh, I've been saved and that's all I need, and there it is. And we're going to go on and keep living. No, no, no. That's not going to work in your marriage. That's not going to work with your friends. Why in the world do we think that's going to work with our relationship with God? Keep studying who God is. Keep leaning in. Keep knowing who he is and growing in that. Because as he is, as we learn about the nature of God, so are we in the world. John is telling us, I want you to be God in this world, but we have to understand who he is. And so when we read that, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what, what God is? And when we're talking about his love, what is God? And what God determines what we ought to be. So God determines what we ought to be in this world. So let's look at, okay, what's God in this world, right? So God is love. That's what we've been talking about. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Luke 5 32, when we think about, okay, God's love is for who? The righteous? No. Who'd God go after? The sinner, the broken, the oppressed, this, the tax collector, the prostitute. 
He didn't come after the religious elite. He didn't come after the wise. He went after the sinner. That's who God is with his love. And what did God do with his love? 1 John 4, 9 tells us, in, in this, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed among us. And so we, what do we do with the love of God? We want to manifest this to the world. We want people to see the love of God. We want to reveal Jesus to the world. And so who does he go after? Sinners, broken, messy people. Who should we go after? Sinners, broken, messy people. What was he doing with his love? Revealing himself. What do we do with the love of God? We reveal Jesus. When, when do we do this? Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So when did God decide to show his love? Why we deserved it? Why we earned it? Because of our faith? No. When you were dead in your sins. So if that's when God wanted to reveal his, when do we do it? I think it's in the brokenness and the messiness of life. That we can't wait for the world around us to get their lives better and cleaned up and then they're allowed in the church. No, the church is supposed to go out into the broken, dark places of the world and invite the broken and the messy to walk in his marvelous light. We can't just sit in these walls and just hope for some reason that somebody driving on 42 that has had a broken, messy life that needs Jesus is going to see our cute little sign and be like, oh, I should go. Be no. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't convict somebody, but Scripture is clear that we are to go and disciple and to teach and to invite people to be a part of the family of God. So where is this happening? 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Look at the end of the verse. But that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Where did God's love pour out in the fullness? It was the cross of Jesus Christ. And so where should we allow the love of God to pour out in our lives? It's going to be a place of sacrifice. But we don't like that word. And we don't like the other S word that comes along with it, suffering. But Christ suffered, leaving us an example so that we might walk in that. That we, in one breath, will say, oh, we want the love of God to be poured out in us and through us. It's going to take sacrifice and suffering. Do you really want the love of God? Know what you're praying for. Because all we have to, as he is, so are we. So we just have to look at God. Where did his love pour out? It was on the cross. And that's going to be the place of sacrifice with us, with our time, sacrifice with our treasure, sacrifice with our talent. And it's going to be in the places of darkness. That we're not going to be able to sacrifice where, like, we're not coming here as a sacrifice as the body of Christ. We're coming here to be encouraged ammoed up, we're going to heal any wounds, and then we're going to equip, and then we're going to send you right back out to the mission field. That's what this place is. This is a hospital. This is an armory. This isn't the battlefield. Out there, the place of sacrifice with our everyday, normal, everyday lives, that's where the love of God is going to be, again, revealing who Jesus is. And how did God's love work? Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
That's the other word we don't like. We don't like sacrifice. We don't like suffering. And I don't want to serve anybody. Yeah, we get it. Jesus came not to be served, but I kind of like being served. I want, this is what I want people to do for me. When we have that kind of attitude, understand that's the most anti-Christ thing that we could have about us. To be able to say that we love Jesus and we love that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom, but we are so unwilling to lay down our lives. That reveals the shallowness of our faith, the shallowness of our relationship with Jesus. So we come to serve and not just to proclaim the gospel, but to prove the gospel. St. Francis of Assisi in like the 1500s has this line that says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Part of me loves that. Part of me hates that, right? Because like, if I go to a, a food kitchen and I'm handing out food to homeless people, and that is me proving the love of God, but at some point, I have to open up my mouth. There's not enough food I could put on a plate. There's not enough clothes I can give to somebody. There's not enough cold water that I could give to a little one that is going to say, Jesus loves you. He took your sin and died for you. And his invitation to be a part of his family is available to you if you will surrender, if you will repent and if you will put your faith and your trust in him, put your confidence on him. There's not enough works that I can do that are going to communicate that. So yes, it does need to be proclaimed, but it needs to be proved. And it needs to be proved, and it does need to be proclaimed. So preach the gospel at all times. Use words and our actions. But don't just use words. And don't just do actions. That's not the Christian lifestyle. That Jesus always served, but then he always taught as well. So look at verse 11. Beloved. Remember that term we used last week, beloved. Those that are personally experiencing God's love, his nature, beloved, that's what it means. If, or another way you could put it is since, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved, God loves you. Do you know that this morning? Do you fully understand the identity of what it means to be loved by God? If you do, you got to read the next part of the verse. So we should also ought to love one another. See, the problem for us at times is we are slow to show the love of God because we don't want our actions to be perceived as condoning or affirming sin. And we'll say yes and amen when we see what God did with his love and how and who he went after, but yeah, I wouldn't go there, Lord. You want me to be seen with people like that? Jesus says, well, I was seen with people like that. Does, did my presence condone or affirm their sin? No, but it was perceived to be. And if they said that about Jesus, why are you so worried about that being said about you? He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Yep, so do I. Sinners are really good cooks at times. Why not? 
Jesus was even perceived that way. But what we have to understand, what we have to understand is that the love of God will never contradict the word of God. So if we are walking in the love of God, that nature letting him define, if we are walking in the love of God, we'll be walking in the word of God. That there's no way that we could express the love of God somewhere in some dark part of our world to somebody lost in, in really crazy sin. There's no way that we could show the love of God and find ourselves in contradiction to the word of God. Now, will the world, will the religious elite, you know, the world outside of the church, the religious elite, the Pharisees inside the church, which there's still a few, will they look at us and be like, what are you doing? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you loved Jesus. Why are you, why are you in those kind of places with those kind of people? Because Jesus was in those kind of places with those kind of people. And understand, we're those kinds of people. At what point did we separate ourselves from that? See, when we have that kind of heart, understand that's pride that's pride that you're dealing with in your mind that I, I don't want to be seen with those kind of people. I don't want to be condemned for hanging with those people or I don't want to think that I'm affirming their lifestyle. Nobody's affirming their lifestyle. We're showing the love of God. So understand it's pride. It's disobedience in your walk. We're like Jonah. I want you to go to the Ninevites. Nope. Try again, Lord. We're just like Jonah. Thank the Lord there's not that big of fish to swallow me up and spit me out on the other side of the lake. Or maybe. And number three, so it's pride in your mind, it's disobedience in your walk, and it's a lack of faith in your heart. Lord, what, what is the world or what are my friends going to think if I really show the love of God to the same people that you showed your love to? You're serving them. You're not serving God. You're a divided house. And you will fall. The love of God will never conflict with the word of God. So we absolutely need to know the word of God. And we absolutely need to show the love of God to this world around us. Because if it's not us, who, who's going to show them Jesus? If it is not the church, what is God's backup plan for the church? I've read it. There is none. There is no plan B. God, for some reason, entrusted each and every one of us to be his hands, his feet, his heart, to be his body in the world. He even tells us, you're amazed at the things that I do? Greater things you'll do. But do we understand the nature of God? Are we willing to walk in obedience and surrender to him to allow him to define what we do with our lives? That's the Christian walk. So Father, we love you and we trust you, Lord. Even when we don't want to. Even in our doubts, Lord. Help us in our unbelief. Help us when we are wavering. Help us when we're walking in pride and disobedience. Help us with our lack of faith, Lord. 
Let your grace be sufficient in our weaknesses. But we ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. So that we would be your hands, your feet, your heart to this world. That we would grow in our depth and our understanding of who you are and and what your love was about and for who and how you showed that, Lord, I pray the same would be of our lives. And so we come to you this morning. And we ask, keep using us, Lord, for your kingdom, for your purposes, for your will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.